Corona lockdown also means that hundreds of thousands of people out there are also victims of sexual violence as we speak. Are your thoughts now with friends and relatives who live in toxic relationships? Listen to this first out of a series of interviews with Brianna Hertford, an expert working with victims of rape and domestic violence. You'll find out what it is, how to protect yourself and or how to help people who need it in your so-called friends. So during the COVID crisis, there's been a lot of conversation around gender-based violence and domestic violence being on the rise. And so I feel it's an important opportunity for us to not only discuss the dangers that come with the lockdown that many of us are aware of, but also what are the opportunities for us to show up as helpers or supporters of the victims. So thanks, Brianna, for being with us. You've been very active in this space for many years. So thanks for accepting the invitation. So of course, thank you for having me. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yes. So for the context a little bit, this first episode will be about the general framework, the vocabulary, what the concept is about. So for those of you who already know what this is and you're interested in listening the second episode which is going to be more focused into the COVID context and then there's going to be one more which will be specifically about Brianna's story and how you can yourself become an activist in this space. Can you give us a bit of a, like a breakdown of, of this whole space? Like what is like going further into typology of, of the gender-based violence? What is it? And if we were to focus in, in our EU space now, the European culture, which ones are the types of violence and the uh, dependent structures that you will now go into? Which ones are most widely seen in our society? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to focus primarily on intimate partner violence and sexual violence, because honestly, this is a prevalent issue in any culture, any country around the world. And that's where most of my direct service work comes from, is working with survivors of domestic and sexual violence. I'm sure we all know the statistics, but pretty so much the statistics have been around for, I mean, it's almost like we know, but we don't really know, right? Because all of us would like replicate right. these numbers of one in four women, one in three sometimes. And we all know yeah. that much of this violence goes unreported. So we kind of know yeah. statistics, but is there like one percentage that you guys as experts would be working with? So, I mean, I think the, the one in three women uh, experiencing sexual violence, experiencing domestic violence, that statistic has been pretty stable over time and across different contexts. When you're talking about different groups, for example, men also experience sexual violence. They also experience domestic violence. And that's a um, very marginalized group, actually, because there's so much stigma attached with male rape or a male survivor of domestic violence. Then the numbers are even more tricky, right? Reporting is hard enough, but then with marginalized communities, that can be more challenging. And in this case, male survivors are marginalized. Same with the LGBTQ community. So numbers really vary. But in general, statistics aside, it's a very pervasive issue uh, across the world. Intimate partner violence, for example, has several specific types. But the core thing to remember is that it's based around power and control. So the abuser is looking to create and maintain power and their partner. And it happens over time. So you don't go on a first date and somebody is violent or verbally abusive towards you and you say, okay, let's have a second date, right? That's not the way that works. You fall in love first. You typically build 
a home, a life together, perhaps children. So I think that's that's something really important to remember is that. So then the violent part of the personality starts showing up and it's always been there? Or is it because of the triggers or the societal or the life phase that the person is in that it starts reappearing? Because obviously that's an entire kind of question. Like, <laughs> like, should I have seen it there at the beginning, right? That's what most of the victims are asking themselves or rather their friends, like, didn't you see it coming? in a way it's really hard because it's that is a very common reaction is to blame yourself and unfortunately we live in a culture and a society where everybody else also blames the survivor so that victim blaming is really hard to unlearn and to realize that you know your biggest crime was that you fell in love right and then as signs start to show up, the different tactics of abuse are going to make it more and more challenging to both recognize those signs, to trust yourself that those signs are valid and you're not just overreacting, and then to say, okay, it's time, I need to act. Yeah. So, and so tell us a little bit more about the areas in which this can be showing up because it's obviously not just sexual violence, it's not just bedroom, right. but there's all kinds of power behaviors that happen around it in other areas of life. So give us a bit the universe of uh, of where is it that it can be manifesting and in particular, which are the, the gray areas where, as you're saying, mm-hmm. am I overreacting or would it really be classified right. as violence already? So in terms of relationships, there's a bit of a continuum. On this side, let's say this is a healthy relationship, which does not mean you're perfect. (laughs) It just, (laughs) it means that overall you're doing okay, you're communicating, you're respecting each other, etc. right? And then towards the middle, let's say this is unhealthy behavior. Sometimes even if you're in a healthy relationship, you or your partner can kind of dip towards this side of the scale. For example, what behaviors is it? If something very stressful happened. So let's say that I got into a car accident and a week later I was really upset, really hysterical and just really still reliving that trauma of being in a near death car accident. And my partner was dismissive and was saying, no, like you're overreacting, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then after we both calmed down, we were able to circle back and say, okay, you did not handle that correctly. My partner was going through stress with work, et cetera. And then we talk it out in a way that's healthy and it does not repeat. Right. It's Whereas not- if you move from the unhealthy relationship further, then yes. what is it? So- So then that's a pattern. That's different than an isolated incident where it's unhealthy and it's not justifiable, but it's something that you and your partner both recognize and are willing to work on. Very different. In an abusive relationship, which is this end of the spectrum, it's a pattern of behaviors, again, to create and maintain power and control. There are several types. There's physical violence, which I think most people are, that's kind of what springs to mind first. As you mentioned, sexual violence. There's emotional and mental abuse, there's verbal abuse, and then there's financial abuse. Mm-hmm. Additionally, there are a few other types of abuse. I mean, all of these categories, they, they all um, feed into each other, and typically there's more than one type happening at a time. Mm-hmm. But there's also something called cultural abuse. And this is where, for example, if my partner is a migrant who is a non-native speaker of the language of the country we live in, if I don't let my partner speak their native language to their family, or I don't let them speak their native language at all, right? That's really 
Mm -hmm. humiliating and challenging and very disrespectful to my partner mm -hmm. or also there's cyber abuse that which is like checking your partner's phone yeah so it's again it's it's a pattern <laughs> so remember sometimes there there's these unhealthy behaviors here in the middle but this over on the end that's a pattern and it's used it's a it's a means to an end it's a tactic yeah. cyber abuse can be checking your phone but it also can be the expectation that you're going to be able to answer your phone at all times so for example mm -hmm. if you don't answer and your partner completely explodes and gets angry and you look at your phone after you've been at a lunch date with one of your friends and you see that you have like 20 missed calls, 50 missed texts. Well, nothing really is happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so to come back to the mainstream categories that you've mentioned, can you go a bit deeper into the emotional and mental? Because I think that's probably one of the hardest to distinguish because the more, again, Absolutely. coming to the European Union space with all the intercultural differences and the generations and the, the more diverse the relationship are becoming and also with we've been having this conversation around women empowerment with everybody having different expectations mm -hmm. of, of the extent of freedom and self-expression and support one of each other in the relationship so yeah. what are these two categories specifically when does it become not unhealthy but even toxic and violent the emotional and mental abuse i think you hit the nail on the head when you said that that's again category i don't know how else to say it but that is one category of violence yeah. that is really hard to both identify, to measure, and to legitimize. Because a lot of times, both as a society and as individuals, we really downplay how big of an impact and how damaging that abuse is. For example, there's a term called gaslighting. And I think a lot of people at this point have heard about this. Can you explain um, maybe for those who haven't? Yes. Absolutely. So it's also called crazy making because it makes you feel crazy. And it's where your partner essentially is taking their version of reality and forcing it onto you. So for example, I've worked with clients whose abuser would purposefully uh, relocate their keys. So then in the morning, they go to leave the house and they can't find their keys. They can't and you're find like, I'm keys. crazy. I don't know where my keys are. I'm yeah. crazy. And there's your abuser in the background saying, oh, see, see I can't trust you for any Thing. you're always forgetting things you're always what's wrong with you you need to be on med then there's also much more intangible things such as an incident let's say an incident happened and I'm explaining how it made me feel my partner either outright lies and says I never said that I never did that that never happened or in other ways, dismisses my reality and tells me I'm making a big fuss of things, I'm picking a fight. Yeah, and before we obviously go into the second episode, which will be about specifically the strategies for protection while we are under the lockdowns, but under the normal circumstances, we know that typically the self-defense strategy would be to, if possible, to leave, to change your like physical context, get out of that relationship. What are the strategies to protect yourself, for instance, when it comes to the emotional and mental, where it probably takes much longer time because the physical is not there probably yet it's almost less visible and a lot of it is happening in your head and you're questioning your own interpretation of the stories of what happened so when you work with victims how do you go about the strategies to be aware and and put the right label on the behaviors and understand when is the time to do something with it and then what are the strategies to get out of the situation or solve it if possible yeah honestly a lot of work is done around boundaries. That's something that is very applicable in all areas of your life. So I highly encourage anyone to do some personal
personal work on boundaries. And learning the boundary setting. Learning how to recognize when your boundaries are being crossed because we have become very accustomed to not listening to our gut instinct a lot of times, especially in an abusive relationship where you're being told you're wrong, you're overreacting, you're crazy. You're not going to continue listening to your gut instinct. But you mm -hmm. know when a boundary has been crossed, even if you don't really know what it is. You get that pit in your stomach. It's that feeling of discomfort and something just doesn't feel right. So that's a lot of times, especially with emotional and mental abuse, that's a lot of times the ways of identifying it because something could seem really harmless to an outsider, but for you, it is very threatening. And it's based off of the context and it's based off of that individual situation. So in a series of, of like multiplication of the same feelings, right? Because as a, like exactly. as an isolated incident, it's probably a completely different story to when you're living with a person for a long time. Yeah, exactly. So abuse over time, it tends to both happen quicker, happen more frequently, and to escalate. This is something where it might escalate in the form of financial abuse, for example, where all of a sudden your partner is taking out credit cards in your name and racking up a lot of debt, or they are cutting off your ability to access bank cards, et cetera. But in terms of safety planning, it, it really depends, again, on the individual context. And the most important thing is to work with a survivor around what is it that they need, what they need to stay safe, and what they're currently doing to stay safe. And then what are the risk factors, incidents of violence? Are mm -hmm. they predictable? Are they not? Mm -hmm. Are there certain things you can try to reduce risk around? Yeah. In the next episode, we will go more into like what are the support structures that are important to create in these kind of situations. But what I'm wondering yeah. about is probably one of the biggest obstacles that people are facing, the, the victims before they decide to engage and kind of departure strategies is the societal stigma, the blaming of the victim rather than the compassionate and, and supportive attitude that the, that the circles of, of friends or societal networks usually communicate to the victim. And so I'm wondering, based on your experience of operations in the US and in Europe, is there any cultural difference in how big the mental barriers can be or how much of a stigma there is around being a victim of domestic violence and how probably compassionate the society is to, to a woman or a man deciding to leave that relationship and probably also because you know the support structures and the NGOs working in this space so well oftentimes the density and the quality of operation of that infrastructure is sometimes also a reflection of what the society thinks about it, right so if the society doesn't want to recognize that problem the support network wouldn't be there so is it the same all over the place in the two continents that you now know well or is there any difference? Coming from the experience of a survivor, no matter what, it is terrifying to come forward and even to disclose what's going on in your relationship to friends or family because of what you're talking about in terms of stigma and victim blaming, but also out of fear for what's going to happen if your partner finds out that you've been talking to other people about this. So even going to really people that you really trust is really scary. And unfortunately, oftentimes when you do go to either somebody you trust or to a service provider, there is still a lot of societal stigmas and cultural norms that really can make you feel like somehow it was your fault. And that's absolutely not not true. This type of violence, it crosses all, all groups of society. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic 
socioeconomic status, your education, your race, your nationality, your ability level, your sexual orientation. Across the board, this is something that is an issue. Mm -hmm. So, Brianna, we've had a lot of conversation here on domestic violence, about mental, emotional abuse, and it's all kinds of terms and categories that we've been using. But there's also specifically sexual violence that can happen outside of abusive relationship. Can you speak yeah. to it a bit in more detail so that we have the picture more complete of like what is the typology of the violence that the people can be victims of in general now, because we will have the separate episode looking into the COVID period separately. Of course. Yeah. That's a really important distinction is that sexual violence can occur whether it's within an intimate relationship or outside of one. In the majority of cases, the survivor of sexual violence knows their attacker. And that's something that's also very important to keep in mind because a lot of times we have this idea that it's a stranger that pops out from the bushes somewhere. And that's not the case in the majority mm -hmm. of cases. Mm -hmm. And sexual violence is not an act of sexual gratification. It's an act of power of control similar to abuse, but it's not because boys will be boys and he was horny and he couldn't help himself and and she was wearing you know, the skirt she was wearing the skirt she was flirting she was leading him on all of that no that's not the case it's about power and control still so sexual violence exists along a continuum it's any non-consensual act for example maybe on this side of things it's forced viewing of pornography where you do not consent to it but somebody is forcing you to view pornography but there are all sorts of different instances where your bodily autonomy your sexual and reproductive rights and health can be violated by someone regardless of whether or not it constitutes what we legally consider rape point is, is that any act that is done without your consent is a form of sexual violence. And that's something where absolutely reach out for help, whether it's to your local rape crisis center, to the authorities, if you want to report to your doctor, etc., just to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Thank you for now. Thanks for this addition, because I'm already thinking about how all of this interplays and what kind of support structures these people have at their disposal as we're in the COVID lockdown. So we will complete now this first episode. And once again, don't forget to subscribe to be notified about the next episode, because in that one, we will be going more into the strategies and also the dangers that the people are facing now during the COVID crisis. And then in the subsequent episode, we will also discuss Brianna's personal experience of working with the victims of domestic violence. So thanks for now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!